record. You're going to catch me saying record in the beginning of mine. Don't worry about it. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome to episode 35 of Major Revisions. I didn't say anything dumb right before starting the intro. Um... But my name is John Walter, and I'm from Whoville, and joining me, are, as usual, are Jeff Atkins from Ramtown and Grace Wilkinson from Cyclone City. Go Cyclones! Yeah, go Who's. Uh, go Who's, yeah, who's so and Rams. Both, both. Who's and Rams. Actually, I don't think the Rams are, are going to be in it. No, let me look that up. Yeah, I don't think they're going to no, make the tournament make this it. year. <laughs> Bad News Bears, as a former Ram. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we're just talking about some... March Madness stuff. Um, hopefully, yeah, I'm not so subtly putting pressure on Jeff to mix this before the tournament. I'm sorry, Jeff. Grace is Iowa State. Like, what's Iowa State basketball like? That that's a great question. You know, they're certainly better than their football team, and I think they're doing pretty all right. Um, I do remember when I was actually deciding if I was going to sign with Iowa State, like come be a professor here, Virginia played ISU, and I was going to let that game decide. But then I didn't. Virginia, of course, won, because they are the better team. They are the best. Sorry, Cyclones. I thought you you were going to say, I got the paperwork, and then I looked at it, and, you know, I was like, okay, this looks good, startup's good, salary's good, lab space is good, but seriously, folks, the basketball team. Guys, we need to talk about this. This is a make or break for me. Yeah, well, better than our football team. And hey, our football team actually had a bowl game this year. So first time since 2012. That was good. Everyone gets a bowl game. So it's really surprising that we hadn't had one for five years. Yeah. Because that's that's how bad we were. Uh, Anyways. Well, UVA, it was our first since 2010. Is that right? Yeah. We're good at all the other sports. Uh, Yeah, basically. UVA is very good at the country club sports. Country club sports. Rowing, tennis. We have a squash team now, apparently. Well, I mean, like... I rest my case. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Fair point. I was actually actually surprised we didn't have a squash team before, personally. It was a squash club. We have a rugby club. We're good at lacrosse, too. That's Mm -hmm. sort of country clubby. Yeah, it's country club adjacent. But, Sorry, Sorry to all of our listeners we just offended. The real March Madness hotness is up because it's March Mammal Madness time again. Woo! But they have a bunch of non-mammal categories. Um, yeah, I don't know what any of those are. I'm looking. Well, they've got... S- What's a juggalator? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I definitely are... 16th. I have my pick for this year. Do you all have your pick, who you're going to have? Grace... Is the tardigrade underseeded at 15? Absolutely. Yeah, what is yeah. that? That shit can live forever. Yeah, well, I don't know how it kills a green anaconda in the first round, but it's definitely not going to die. Well, if it. the fight is in space, the tardigrade will win. Oh, yeah, the you, fight could be in space. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be on the anaconda's home turf, because the anaconda's the higher seed. The, yeah. Hey, I... I just want to clarify, I'm not a mammalologist, but I do not believe that a green anaconda's home turf is space. 
So there's that. You don't know. So have you all picked your winners yet, or are you still filling out your brackets? Oh, I am all in on the secretary bird. The okay. What? I have heard that the from a few people. Bird. What the fuck is a secretary bird? It is a terrestrial bird of prey. It's fierce. Like a roadrunner? Is it ro- it's 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 more like of a it's more like a ground based eagle. <laughs> oh, man, that's I don't know about that. <laughs> that's like a metaphor for our country. Okay. <laughs> First of all, eagles are basically like trash birds, right? Like they're they're like yeah. one of the weakest birds of prey. So like that, I mean, a gra- I don't know, man. All I know is it's got a big beak and it looks fierce. Hold on, let me let me Google some pictures of this thing because I want to, you know, secretary bird. Yeah, um, I mean it's a bird. Uh, let's look at some some stats. Yeah, it's can, a very large, mostly terrestrial bird of prey endemic to Africa, and it can be like over a meter tall. Fuck that! that That's big. That thing does look like a freaking dinosaur, though. Yeah, it, it does look like a dinosaur. I give you that, but I am all in on Team Platypus. Mm. Team Platypus. All right, I it leaks I, poison. Through its skin. Yeah, that is pretty badass. And it lives That's in Australia, and oh, wait, no, haven't it's... been to Australia, but my sense is that everything there wants to kill you. Wait, no, so... it's no, it secretes milk through its skin, and it has poison barbs. That's what it is. Either way, it's badass. All right, yeah. so your yeah. secretary right. bird comes up on the platypus. Platypus hops out, <laughs> barb to the face, duck bill to the feet, sweep kick, boom down. I don't know, man. The claws, the claws. Grace? On my secretary bird. Grace, what are you in on? Um, so I'm thinking the Coatamundi because I saw a Coati when I was in Costa Rica, like, straight up attack a woman and take her lunch sack away from her. Like, this, the, <laughs> these things were the fiercest things in the world. I live in fear of them. And then they, like, fought with you. Yeah, I just, they scare the crap out of me, so I'm going with the Coati. I mean, All right. I, like, I mean, I'm hard pressed to pick against the Demetrodon, honestly. Like, the Demetrodon's pretty, pretty awesome. But I also don't know what the other two things are that have higher seeds than the Demetrodon, so I assume they're also awesome. But since my seven year old is asleep right now, and he would be the only one I know who would know everything that's on here, I don't have him to consult. <laughs> You have an unfair advantage in filling out this bracket. Yeah, I'm just going to let him pick. <laughs> um, I'll, yeah, at least that quarter. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I okay, I got to Google what a fat-tailed dunnert is, and then I'll quit typing because I have to and edit all of these out. And it's uh, that awesome. what that is is an excellent name to call someone who's being really stupid. True story. A fat-tailed dunnert. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's got a pretty. That's fat my tail. new insult. It looks like a finnick. You lost me. I think that's the name of it. I don't know. It's a rodent with a fat tail, and it's got big ears. It's yeah. Quite cute. Sounds edible. No, I mean, you, it looks like you could eat this. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. If you're brave enough, though, you could eat anything on here. Yeah, I'm minimally brave. Well, okay. Of the ones that are not extinct. John, are you thinking about which one on here you would most like to eat now? I'm thinking about 
how to make a bad transition to our actual show topic. <laughs> John, do you know what animal is not on here? A Canadian a lynx. goddamn Canadian lynx. Hell yeah. Nice transition, Jeff. <laughs> and why are we talking about the Canadian lynx today? Uh, well, let me preface this. So this is the first episode in an ongoing series where we're taking a look at some classic papers that have influenced the research careers of one or more of us. Um, and so we're going to kind of look at that foundational paper, trace its influence um, as different researchers have picked up and grappled with those ideas. And the first in this series is a discussion of uh, Pat Moran's 1953 gem, The Statistical Analysis of the Canadian Lynx Cycle, number two, Synchronization and Meteorology. So... Uh, Hold your applause. (laughs) I was waiting. (laughs) So you want to start by summarizing for us? Yeah. um, It's a great idea. (laughs) So... In the early 20th century, um, you know, through the 40s and 50s and and even beyond that, uh, there was a lot of ecological interest um, from folks like Charles Elton and others on population cycles in the Canadian links. Uh, There are these historical records from the Hudson Bay Company um, dating back over... um, you know, 200 years into the, um, you know, 1800s and, and, uh, and even prior that showed this cyclical 10 year, roughly 10 year pattern in, uh, the number of, of trappings. And, uh, this reflected a 10, roughly 10 year cycle in the population dynamics of the links that, it turned out to be um, synchronous, so exhibiting you know s- similar patterns in peaks and troughs in abundance uh, across you know, basically the whole con- uh, you know con- all of Canada from you know both east and west of the Rockies, and so there were were a lot of efforts going on to try and explain why these cycles occurred and why they were synchronized over such large areas. Um, So, of course, you know, a lot of the story in why they cycle is because of predator-prey interactions. Uh, This is a pretty iconic example uh, where the lynx primarily feed on um, hare, like the the um, rabbit-ish, rabbit-adjacent organism, um, snowshoe and, hair specifically, right? Yes, snowshoe hair. Uh, and so they, you know, so using some population models, you can, you know, generate cycles endogenously just, you know, through oscillations and predator-prey numbers. Um, but that didn't really explain why these populations were synchronized over such large areas. And so the importance of uh, this um, work by Pat Moran 
is that he comes up with a mathematical description of how meteorology can synchronize population dynamics under particular conditions. Um, so he, you know, stated in this paper that um, if you have two populations that are governed by identical um, linear dynamics, then the correlation, uh, which is how we typically measure synchrony, um, in the abundances of these two populations is equal to the correlation in some environmental noise, ostensibly climate or meteorology, uh, between those two locations. So basically, he showed that you know, under some kind of specified conditions that the correlation between the populations is equal to how correlated the environment is. Uh, and so this has been come to be uh, known as Moran's theorem and Moran effects refer to um, climate or some other exogenous environmental fluctuation synchronizing population dynamics. Um, so I have two questions. I guess the first is, was he really the first one to kind of push this idea of there being that exogenous type of factor that influences population dynamics? So um, as I understand it, Charles Alton kind of proposed that idea, but didn't go as far as Moran did in terms of showing mathematically how that could arise. Okay. And second, the idea of populations. So he's looking at, I guess this is more of a deeper question about how like population ecology has itself evolved. Um, when did the idea of basically different populations of, cause he's looking at multiple populations here of Canadian links, right? When did that kind of definition evolve? Because he's appearing, like a, a, comparing across populations of Canadian lynx. But when did that kind of idea originate? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Like the, I guess the idea of like what a population is. When did that definition codify? Oh, man. So, you know, I would say that there's still, you know, there's sort of like a textbook definition of populations, um... You know, that being, well, I guess textbook, you know, populations should be independent of one another, um, you know, in the sense that they are, you know, interbreeding, but not, you know, breeding extensively with some other population. Um, but, you know, of course, probably very relatively few populations in nature are completely closed, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, operationally, we think of oftentimes different locations where we have independent measurements as being different populations. Um, and that, you know, the degree to which those things, those, you know, locations are actually you know, completely, um, you know, non-interbreeding is probably a, you know, a, a, f a fuzzy kind of subject. 
Um, and occasionally we get pushback on that. Um, a, a paper that I'm a co-author on, um, looking at synchrony uh, in in Plankton, uh, some of the reviewers commented on that um, because we, you know, we were looking over a spatial scale where, you know, the the you know Plankton were likely dispersing among the different locations, at least some of the different locations that we were um, measuring their abundance in. Um, but in some respects, at least, at least in terms of synchrony studies and, you know, probably lots of other questions as well, a lot of the interesting dynamics happen where you have, um, you know, populations that are near enough to, um, you know, where dispersal does link them, where similarity in environmental conditions also does, um, you know, induce synchrony and, and, and create some, um, connection or relatedness among those populations, um, even irrespective of, of dispersal occurring. So I think it kind of has a, a corollary in the ecosystem concept as well, right? In that that's a community of organisms interacting with each other in their environment, Right, but the one of the main benefits of the ecosystem concept is you can draw boundaries. Boundaries are important, and then you have an inside the ecosystem and an outside the ecosystem. So I'd imagine populations; it's sort of the same. You operationally have to draw boundaries, mm-hmm. and then decide what's inside or outside. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a question that is, I would imagine, grappled with at all scales of ecology. Yeah, I think definitely, uh, especially as you you know have to think about you know the limits on what you can actually sample and study. So I'd imagine these populations that they were talking about were trapping areas from the, the Hudson company. Yeah. You know, they're, they're trapping areas. And as I mentioned, you know, they're looking at, um, including locations, you know, both East and West of the Rockies over, you know, a pretty large area. So ostensibly they are, you know, sampling some things that are close enough to be linked through dispersal, but also areas that are very unlikely to be linked through dispersal. But they are displaying synchrony. But they're displaying synchrony. Okay. Yeah. Um, which which is part of how they arrived at the conclusion that yeah, probably it's it's climate um, that is at least contributing to the synchrony in these populations. They trapped a lot of links. Yeah, I mean, this was this was big business back in the day. So um, this may also be a naive question. These, in Table 3, where there's the increase of links populations in successive years, and trust me, I, I do realize that me talking about a mathematical table is not the most appealing audio. <laughs> these numbers are these just like pure trap data, or are these like corrected to population type data, or had that notion not even was that not even a thing yet? I'm interpreting these as the numbers that are trapped. Yeah, I would think so. Okay, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I mean it. You know, it's pretty probably the most interesting thing here is that ratio. Um, cause that's, you know, sort of like your year on year, 
um, you know, population growth rate. Um, and so, so what that ratio is saying is everything except for the Athabasca went up by a factor of two. Yeah, or, or pretty close, pretty darn close to it. Yeah. Okay. So this idea of synchrony, is this a novel thing to Moran, or is this something that had been kind of batted around, like, as far back as Elton, uh, or even as, like, Lachlan Volterra? Yeah, I mean, you know, to my knowledge, Lachlan and Volterra, you know, though that work was mainly interested in the generation, well, you know, the interactions among species, and their work was used, among other things, to show how those interactions, um, specifically predator-prey interactions, could generate cyclic dynamics. Um, I'm actually not totally certain what the, you know, what the origin of interest in synchrony is, um, as far as pinning it to one, you know, particular paper or time period, but as I, as I understand it, you know, part of the fascination with these links is in, in how synchronized their population dynamics were at a, you know, continental scale. Yeah, that was going to be another question I had. How, why links? Was it just because they only eat the one thing? They're economically important. Wouldn't you want to predict what the population was going to maybe be next year so you could know how many people to either hire to go out and trap or what your profit was going to be? I didn't know how economically important Canadian links are. Were I guess they're not now. Are they? What do you use the links for? Is it just the fur? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just, it's the the fur. Is this a hat thing? I mean, it's a nice study system. They, actually, because I told you all I would bring the lynx facts. <laughs> lynx mostly eat snowshoe hares, but they've also been known to eat mice, voles, grouse, red squirrels, and ptarmigan. Or ptarmigan, if you are hooked on phonics. Yeah. But. Suck <laughs> it, Moran. <laughs> That's Wait, right. Lynx so, fact okay. number one. So, so what are you using? It, this is just like the lynx fur is what. And so, basically, we're just looking at this was a very lucrative economic system at one point. Yeah. And, and I, and I think probably, I mean, I don't know if, if ecosystem ecologists get as fascinated by this as population ecologists like me do, but there's sort of like an intrinsic fascination in just about anything that you can mine for really long data sets. Um, and, I mean, they have, like, you know, in, well, as of, you know, 1940, and, you know, the fur trade had, I think, kind of uh, died down by then, but, you know, we're looking at a data set from, like, at least the late eight, at least a hundred years long, Um, and these are roughly 10 year cycles that they exhibit. So that's like 10 cycles. There are very few things outside of a laboratory that you can get 10 population cycles worth of data on, you know, even, you know, even today. Um, and, you know, even into like the eighties and nineties, there were still studies looking at, 
the Canadian lynx and, you know, their population cycles building on these, you know, classic works and, um, trying to evaluate, um, you know, new hypotheses about the mechanisms that were generating, um, their population dynamics. Okay, my appreciation for this just went, like, way up. Because I think when I first got this, I was like, why Canadian lynx? But apparently everyone else in the world, except me, knew how vital this was to apparently the Canadian and world economy. Because of, <laughs> I don't know about the world economy. But... Because of, like, lynxfacts.com well, or whatever the hell Grace has been reading. But uh, <laughs> well, at, at least, like, five population ecologists over the last, you know, hundred years that have been prominent enough for people to care about their work well, and, and so i guess the other, the other thing is like so this this work kind of just faded into the background until about the mid 80s right yeah so i think um you, you know i in some respects um you know some of those intervening years are a bit of a black hole in terms of uh, you know, finding all the research that went on then, but definitely in the sort of late eighties and nineties, and um, you know, synchrony started becoming cool again. What was going on then? You know, so like Duran I, Duran synchrony got its groove back. The police uh, synchronicity. That was a good album. <laughs> I think it's 83, 84. Don't uh, quote me. I know. Maybe it's pop culture. Um, you know, so, <laughs> you know, some something that I that I that I think may have had a bit to do with it was that you know, chaos became cool, and um, you know, there are a lot of you know synchronous dynamics, um, you know, phase locking and stuff like that um, that are you know woven into chaos theory and and you know cyclical dynamics and stuff like that um that i think you know could have played a role in synchrony becoming cool again in ecology um i think something else that might have played a role is just the availability of some more you know longer data sets that are amenable to synchrony studies you know especially if you have something like the Canadian lynx where you have cyclical dynamics um, that are, you know, multi-annual, you know, you need at least a couple cycles to really be able to start to say something about how related the dynamics are. You know, if, if you take something that has a, you know, 10 year cycle length and you only have three years of data you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to say much about what's going on. And this is why LTERs are important. All right, sorry, just sticking that in there. Yeah, no, it it's it's totally totally a great example of why that's important. So, are you ready for Lynx fact number two? Yes, I am. Okay, Lynx have twenty eight teeth, and they have four canines that are completely like laced with nerves, so that they can tell whether or not they're biting into their prey. Apparently, apparently, twenty-eight teeth is an odd number of teeth to have if you're a feline. So I don't know why. I'm just putting it out there. The, the other twenty-four teeth are incapable of feeling anything. Apparently, they just aren't as sensitive. Wow. Huh. Wow. 
Now, that's cool. Now I want to make like a Sensodyne toothpaste ad with links in it or something. That'd be really specific. Anyways. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm on shuffle play tonight. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's keep going. Hey, John, I have a question. Okay, I'm going to look up if yeah, links are currently it. endangered or anything. Go ahead. Um, so, Moran, is this the same as Moran's eye? Yes. What's that? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Moran's eye is a um, statistic for quantifying spatial autocorrelation. So essentially how similar nearby um, observations are to one another. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so Moran did a lot. He Yeah, he did. Um, he's a really interesting character. And I, I'm kind of totally in awe of his career path because it's totally untenable in <laughs> modern academia. Um, so the dude never got a PhD, um, but he was a senior researcher and lecturer at Oxford. Um, he's a full professor at Australian National University. He's got like awards named after him, the Moran Medal is given to um like the australian statistician um who's kind of done the most to advance his field um he's a really kind of interesting dude um and all of this despite like his professors not thinking he was a good mathematician under you know whatever conventional standards of the day um, by his own admission, he wasn't very good at arithmetic, but he, you know, he came to have a really important influence on population dynamics, um, population genetics, apparently. Um, there's a Moran process that is named for him that I don't really understand and hadn't heard of before because I don't know things about population genetics, um, and spatial statistics with Moran's eye, like we just mentioned, um, so yeah, I'm just like huh. really um, interested in, and impressed with uh, with what he's done through you know creative thinking and um, you know and you know interesting science and thinking about problems that other people um, weren't thinking about or how to bring math to problems that other people weren't bringing math to. Yeah, even though by you know certain metrics or expectations he wasn't maybe likely to be uh nearly as successful as he was yeah that's crazy i think kind of like you were saying before it, it he wouldn't have the same career at all today no phd yeah not necessarily yeah that's that's really impressive and it was something that else that really stood out to me about this paper is uh is the writing style and you know there are other things that also stood out you know, I, other things have stuck out to me um, similarly about reading other, you know, papers from this era. But, you know, there's a big premium, I think, placed on rhetoric and logic that aren't as big a part of modern scientific writing, hmm. uh, which, which kind of kind of interests me. Um, and the other thing that really kind of interests me about this paper is that there are a lot of sort of unproven conjectures. Hell yeah, there are. That 
if it were a modern scientific paper, because doing statistics is so easy, there's no way you could get away with. So I don't know if that that part in particular is impressive, but it's interesting. It 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 reads more like a math paper than it does a science paper, really. It does, although I think, I think, um, you know, the f- funny thing about this is that you know it's it's this you know relationship between populations synchronized by environmental noise is called Moran's theorem. But he doesn't actually prove it in the paper. Yeah, he basically says, like, yeah, I didn't really even try. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's sort of... Uh, where's the quote? Hold on, I'm going to find this real quick. Go ahead. But, yeah, I mean, by sort of rigorous mathematical standards, it's a little bit more of, like, a hypothesis or a conjecture than a theorem. You know, it's it's not really, you know, proven in any, you know, sort of rigorous mathematical sense, but... You know, it turns out to be true, and uh, also if you adjust its assumptions, um, like if you give it nonlinear population dynamics, then um, you can get different levels of correlation. Um, you know, the correlation in the environmental driver is not necessarily the correlation in the noise, but you you know still typically get synchronization unless you're population dynamics are really weird so quote although the author has not calculated the correlations between x at time t and the logarithms of the numbers of the links caught in the other regions it's obvious they must be very high unquote yep (laughs) yeah and there there are probably two or three more of those if you oh yeah dig them up i'm not inviting you to I, yeah, I can go through it. No, if you want. <laughs> There's also multiple points where he just goes through. He's like, no, no, no it's cool. I, I, I had a personal communication with Charles Elton. He said it was fine. <laughs> but the best part, the best part of this paper, um, and it's a good paper, is the very last sentence. On the other hand, solar activity, as indicated by sunspot numbers, is definitely not related to the link cycle, and no other natural phenomenon seems to provide an explanation. So, TLDR, I don't know, but it's definitely not sunspots. <laughs> Which, to me, that last sentence reads as, like, the reviewer suggested sunspots, and yeah. so I had to say something. Yeah, it was obviious, like, yeah, well, it's definitely not that. That's, don't be ridiculous. Freaking reviewer, too. <laughs> yeah, so, so the sunspots are hilarious, man. So, um, for, for the record, they're... Um, there are other papers that propose sunspots, and I think I th- I'm not a thousand percent certain of this, but I think uh, paper one in this series uh, addresses the role the or non-role of sunspots. So I think he's just kind of pointing back to um, his other paper on statistically analyzing the Canadian link cycle. Yeah, yeah, Moran, 1949, the statistical analysis of the sunspot and link cycles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also, so sunspots, like, <laughs> pop up in all these weird ways in population ecology, and it drives me nuts, because if there's any mechanistic link between sunspots and Canadian links gypsy moth outbreaks like what have you it's like in 
incredibly it's got to be incredibly convoluted but you know it's just these one of these things that if you you know try hard enough and you know give the data enough drinks then <laughs> it'll look you can make it look like sunspots are correlated with anything that is going to be my new hobby <laughs> is getting data drunk no, no. <laughs> looking for sunspots and things so so this is a thing yeah i i we should we should link like a web of science search or something like that and just put population dynamics sunspots and i i mean i can think of offhand the canadian lynx gypsy moth but i'm certain there are like at least 50 studies linking sunspots to some population dynamic phenomenon in some organisms. You know, I think this actually sounds like the first major revisions review paper. Or, like, the ESA bulletin. (laughs) We obviously need to to do something. I don't know who will publish this. Um, But, uh, yeah, I've already been looking at doing automated content analysis. And uh, so, obviously, this is assignment one. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing it. So, you know, you're talking about the different population dynamics, and I'm going to share my third and final Lynx fact. There's only this three? Is actually, oh, no, I have more, but I just thought I wouldn't share them all because y'all might be done. But, um, so, my, my third Lynx fact is actually related to snowshoe hares, but I get back to Lynx. So, apparently, snowshoe hares like to hang out in conifer thickets in the boreal forest, and those are, one of the ways that those are created are through wildfires. And so there's like a wildfire conifer thicket snowshoe hare lynx connection as well. But of Go course, on. wildfires being influenced by meteorology. So Whoa. what? And sunspots. And sunspots. About the sunspots. Absolutely by sunspots. Sunspots all the way down. Yep. So there you go. Fact number three. Beautiful fake science. Yeah. So how has this paper influenced what's going on today in the world of spatial synchrony? So the Moran effect has had a really big influence. Um, well, I mean, we you know we call the fact that climate, meteorology, you know, other sorts of environmental factors that fluctuate through time and are exogenous to the system, Moran effects, because of this paper. Uh, so that's obviously emblematic of its importance. Um, I mentioned before that spatial synchrony studies kind of had a resurgence um, in the 90s and and 2000s, and um, basically these tried to um, study what I'm going to call spatial synchrony in two dimensions. Um, Basically, a very common pattern that you see in any study of synchrony is that, you know, near things tend to be more synchronized than far things. And so as you increase the distance between sites, synchrony tends to decline. Um, And it turns out that one way that you can try and infer what causes synchrony is by looking at, um, the distance decay of synchrony of populations and distance decay of synchrony of potential drivers and 
try and infer based on how similar those patterns are what the drivers are. It turns out that that's a not very strong way to infer process from pattern uh, because a whole bunch of different mechanisms can um, produce similar patterns of distance decay. There are you know, all sorts of things um, that can disrupt or enhance synchrony. Non-linearity non in population dynamics can um, create enhanced synchrony. Um, if you have differences in population dynamics between um, different locations, that can disrupt synchrony. Uh, one of the assumptions of Moran's original theorem is that the population dynamics in two locations were governed by identical equations and that those equations were linear. And so if you break those assumptions, then funny things can happen. Um, shameless plug for my own research, uh, me and, and some other folks um, that I'm working with and also other folks that I don't work with have started looking at spatial synchrony um, in you know, sort of multiple dimensions beyond that um, classic distance decay look, um, looking at more detailed spatial and temporal patterns and whether, um, you know, patterns differ depending on which frequency of oscillations uh, you look at. Um, and those actually have been doing much better than some of these uh, more you know classic classic approaches based on distance alone and standard metrics like correlation um, at actually uncovering what causes synchrony and what disrupts it and things like that so uh, we'll 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 throw some links up um, to both some classic studies and um, some of the newer work that is kind of pushing the boundaries of what we um, know um, or can know about spatial synchrony if you guys are interested in learning about those things. So, so John, what do you think is kind of the next frontier for this research? Um, if you'll permit me to be very uh, self-promoting. Yes. Yeah. And wave your hands like in the air. Like, either like you don't care or like you're making stuff up either one however you want to do that <laughs> um i mean i i think i think some of the work that um you know not just me um are doing um Ottar bjornstad is another another player on this that's been working with some other teams um of researchers basically um you know and and also the group that i work with um that's led by dan ruman uh, looking at, you know, decomposing synchrony in terms of its spatial and temporal patterns. And, um, you know, that's really a frontier. And something that I've kind of begun looking at um, and is, you know, related to some ongoing work in community ecology is, you know, is focusing on other types of community interactions and how... Um, organisms within a community are synchronized 
within that community and across different locations at more meta community scales, part of what that does is it expands the types of species interactions that we think about when we talk about synchrony. You know, we, we've for a long time thought about predator prey and host parasitoid types of things. Um, like you see with the lynx hair cycles as, you know, being interesting from a synchrony perspective, but, um, it turns out that, you know, even if, you know, maybe, you know, competition or mutualism aren't producing necessarily as dramatic effects, um, they're still important effects in structuring the community and, and, and the dynamics of these populations. And so, um, those are also worth our attention from a synchrony perspective. There's also some been some interesting work about looking um, at synchrony across different types of ecosystems. Um, so looking at uh, like s- synchrony between adjacent t- terrestrial and you know coastal marine or aquatic uh, systems and. So that's also, I think, really cool because it makes us think about how different ecosystems that, uh, you know, entirely different, well, not entirely different, but largely different fields and groups of researchers have been thinking about might actually be governed by some of the same processes. And so if we want to understand things like you know, global carbon and nitrogen budgets, we might want to think about those factors that are governing both types of systems simultaneously. Absolutely. And how the inputs to one are not a static. They're a very dynamic and potentially synchronous thing. Exactly. Um, and, you know, potentially with some of these newer approaches, uh, in, in particular, we can get at not only what are those synchronizing factors, but how important are those, you know, other ways of linking terrestrial and aquatic or marine systems um, through, you know, flows of nutrients and organic matter and stuff like that. That is just a really cool idea. I like that a lot. Hopefully, hopefully it's good. Hopefully, all of my population ecology friends don't think I'm a traitor for thinking about ecosystem and community dynamics. Come to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get them yet. Exactly. Um, well, on that alluring note. Do you all have anything else that you want to say about links and synchrony and populations? No, I learned a lot about links. Do you? Do you have one more fact that you can bring it home with? I do, in fact, have one more fact. Lynx in the southern part of their range, which extends into the lower 48 United States, have actually been known to hybridize with bobcats. Whoa. Boom. There you go. So is the... Is the bobcat lynx hybrid cuter or fiercer or both? That is a great question, and I'm going to Google pictures to find out. What's the portmanteau of that? I have been Googling pictures of the lynx feet because, of course, they're very large to act like snowshoes for the animal, and they're giant, and they're, they're little, they're little bean paws, like the little, little jelly beans on the bottoms. If you're not into cat lingo, that's the, like, pads on the bottom. 
Uh, yeah, are adorable. <laughs> so we'll be posting some pictures of those. Isn't aren't don't Beautiful. they have like the Hemi? Aren't they like the Hemiway cats? Like they have the oversized feet. Yeah. Is it like that? Okay. Not like an extra toe, but. No. So do they're you... not polydactyl. If I think that's evolutionary, though, not inbreeding. Right. For the lynx or for the Hemingway cats? For the okay. lynx. Because I can't think of an evolutionary advantage <laughs> to having six toes. I'm sure there may be one. So, what do you call a lynx-bobcat hybrid? Is that like a bobinx? Like a koi wolf? Like, how do you... What's the portmanteau there? That's a great question. I don't know. I will find out, though. Episode 36. <laughs> Report The back. lynx facts continue. So, yeah, continuing on this trend, I guess we need to think about what the next historical ecology uh, text to read is. So, we can do that offline, though. She just want to speculate yes. wildly. I'll probably just cut this part out. Or if, you want, or if you want to suggest one, you can find us. Oh, yeah, I think we would love somehow. to have like suggestions. I know there are people who constantly talk to me about the show, which is awesome. Uh, you can also write us if you would like uh, at major revisions show at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at major underscore revisions. You don't have to just like stop me in the hallway and talk to me there. You know, you can write us. We don't mind. Um, but yeah, that would be kind of cool if somebody, if we had people pick an article and then we had to read it. Cause I mean, we kind of already have an idea of what, the, you know, three of us will pick um and if you suggest an article there is definitely a chance we'd invite you on to talk about it with us oh hell yes we would because we've almost figured out how to do interviews sort (laughs) of we've done two now they're good um and we can only talk out our ass about so many things that's right (laughs) oh i wouldn't sell us short i'm pretty sure (laughs) we could do that Right. We could do a lot of damage. Grace, unless you have another amazing Lynx fact, which I'm totally fine with our spinoff podcast, Major Link Facts. I, there's not a... <laughs> it's not like the podcast within a podcast, Major Renovations, which is also right. a feature where John tells us about his demoing of his house. And uh, Grace, your curtains look really nice, too, and the work that you and, uh, Thank you. You and Bob have done. So. Uh, Thank you. Nice work. I rent, so I ain't doing shit. Um. <laughs> okay, I guess we're really played out at that point. Um, y'all got anything else? <laughs> no, just that you can find us on um, most major podcast platforms. You can communicate with us there too, but we're probably not going to see it. So again, we'd encourage you to find us on Twitter or Gmail. And until then, have a good night. Yeah.